Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Real Estate Forum's Ask the Experts. I am Adam Pawatic. With me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. We are both lenders with First National, as well as co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, and, of course, host for the continuing Ask the Experts uh, series. We are visiting today with a company we're familiar with, being Yardi, but a face that is new to us. Uh, you can see him here. It is Arjan Rao, Senior Director Commercial with Yardi. The theme of the conversation today is going to be tech-enhancing real estate. I mean, that could probably describe virtually you know, everything that Yardi has been doing for the last couple of decades in this space, but we are going to drill down to some examples of how Yardi is kind of pushing the boundaries on on what you can do to optimize your real estate through technology in the current environment. Arjun, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be with you both. Yeah. So Arjun is joining us today from Austin, Texas, but he is familiar with the Canadian market. And of course, you know, we do use his software here in large volume. So he should be well positioned to speak on this. That's right. In fact, we have a lot of lot of Toronto and Vancouver clients that I've worked with closely. And so it's great to be with you and, and be able to talk about what we're seeing, not just in Canada, but just broadly across North America. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it. Just to set the uh, stage, I just want to talk a couple of minutes on your career, how you got to where you are, and what makes you an expert. Yeah, that's a great question. I started, I got my undergrad degree in electrical and computer engineering, and then did nothing related to that. I went into management consulting, and it was not necessarily technology related, but I learned a lot about business. And I would say 10, 15 years ago, it became clear that software was just starting to impact all of our lives, and I wanted to return back to the technology world. So I started to get back into it. I joined Yardi six years ago. At that time, Yardi was more focused on just pure property management and accounting software. But companies were expecting more from us, expecting more from the market. And we started to focus much more on products that could actually improve the performance of a company's portfolio. And that's that's actually what I started out leading and, and now lead all of our commercial products. <laughs> Do you have scope? I guess you have scope over with Canada and the US or what is the broadness of your view? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, we don't necessarily differentiate because so many clients have portfolios that cross both Canada and US, and the solutions are very similar. When we start to go more towards Europe and Asia, some of the asset types change. They have they have slightly different setups, but then also language becomes a much bigger and currency becomes a much bigger thing. So I've supported some of our largest Canadian clients. I work very closely with them, and I we almost differentiate very little between the two geographies. Both are critical. So let's talk about the platform at large. Yeah, maybe just let's do it really quickly just to talk about Yardi. I mean, if you can do it in 30 seconds, we've had you know a bunch of guests on from Yardi and have done a deep dive. But if people haven't listened to those episodes, this is the first time they've heard of Yardi. Maybe just do a quick kind of synopsis of the business and what you do. Yeah. And I'll keep it really quick because I'm not, I think that we have far more interesting things to discuss, but the base product is a property management and accounting software system where landlords and property managers use it to track all their leases and units and properties, et cetera. And on top of that, then we layer on a whole bunch of new products, like products to manage energy, products to manage marketing, to manage leasing, to manage construction, facilities, et cetera. So there's this whole suite of products and that's just within the commercial division. Then we have a multifamily division, a affordable housing and a storage division, senior housing. And so all of that goes down the line. But the area that I'm most focused on is, is commercial. We have about 2,000 employees at Yardi focused on commercial. A decent chunk in Canada. And you've met with Peter Altabelli, who runs our Canadian office, and then a, a good portion in the U.S. as well. So there's a broad suite. 
But the things that are most high priority for clients these days, facilities, construction, leasing, marketing, all of that are sort of products that we'll probably touch on a little bit today. And not specifically our products, but more just like the challenges that, that landlords seem to be facing today. And we do have a couple of innovations here we're going to get into that you're specifically working on. But before we do, how frustrating is it in the two worlds that you exist in? One being technology, which is rapidly evolving, changing, relatively quick adoption, and real estate that's a bit of more of a plodding dinosaur when it comes to world-changing experiences. I actually like that dichotomy a little bit because I feel like sometimes technology gets disconnected from the business process. And it's good to work with the actual people who have the long 20, 30 plus years of commercial real estate experience. They know how the business operates and they, they're very practical. They say, look, this product is not going to help me in this very specific thing. It's irrelevant to me. You can show me all these fancy screens. You can show me all this fancy stuff you guys have dreamed up. It needs to help me in my very specific business process that I've done, or it needs to help me evolve in a way that makes sense to me. And if it doesn't, it's not relevant for them and it shouldn't be relevant for them. And I think in a lot of markets outside of commercial real estate, technology gets way ahead of what actual problems are, right? We've all heard about blockchain and crypto and all these things. Sometimes hard to see what exactly are they solving for. In commercial real estate, it's great because we we run a lot of ideas by our clients. We take a lot of feedback from our clients. And our entire focus is on what are the pragmatic solutions that actually help them and not just sort of building something that's pie in the sky that we think is cool, but doesn't have much relevance for their world. Yeah, real estate is nothing if not a uh, results-focused business and not just tech. I mean, virtually virtually all aspects of it. So I, I think that the theme of today is you know, how you're using tech to solve current day issues in real estate. And the first one I want to touch on was return to work. I mean, we've talked about return to work in numerous contexts on these seminars before, but this is specifically from a tech angle. What landlords are using tech-wise to get tenants back in, get their office users back up, get the downtown cores vibrant again. So we'd love to hear what you're doing on that front to solve what is a topic of conversation for everybody who's at a, an operations level. And that would cruise Aaron. That's why he's smiling. Yeah, we filled, a, we, filled, we filled a beer full of fridge, but the fridge is low tech. I'm not sure that counts, right? What, are, what else are people doing? Yeah, it's a great question because it's something that for Yardi, we have our traditional focus is on landlords and property managers. And there's a huge demand for tenant experience applications, right? Applications that will help get employees back in the office. And our experience with clients who've rolled these applications out, and there's a bunch of apps out there that are being heavily marketed, is not very promising. You know, they're finding that it's hard to get adoption from employees, employees don't stick with it. And so these would be the employees of the tenants who operate the space. And the reasoning is that no matter what the landlord does, a lot of the decisions behind the employees come back to the office are not within the landlord's control. It's things like, does your employee require you to come back? Are your teams or managers or other people coming back in the office or your friends coming in the office? Do you have a long commute? Gas prices. We did an employee survey of our employees. You know, We have 8,000 employees around the world. We did a survey about how many wanted to return back to the office. How often do they want to return back to the office? First of all, it was the fastest results survey we've ever gotten. Within like five minutes, we had 5,000 results. I mean, it was absurd how much people wanted to give feedback on this. And I read through all the comments and it was surprising how many people mentioned gas prices. I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't think of it as a primary reason that people would say, I'm so happy I'm in Atlanta or Los Angeles or Toronto, where we have people commuting 45 minutes in the office. And in, in these days, that's a huge cost. And so... We're finding that the landlord application 
is something that may get traction depending on the landlord. If they have a downtown building that's class A and people want to come there for a variety of experiences, that's that's one thing. For many others, we're finding that it may not get the traction that the people want. But on the tenant side, on the occupier side, if you're the employer, there is a lot of potential for an application and technology to help employees get back into the office. And the types of things that can enable that are things like easily seeing who on my team has come to the office that day, or which of my sort of friends who I can favor or pin in the app are coming into the office that day and creating a sense of more community coming into the office. What events is that employer holding, which is different than a landlord holding a, a generic event across companies. If my actual company is holding an event, then that's different, right? If it's a Friday lunch or something. And so there's that aspect to it that I think actually does have a way for technology to help get employees back in the office together. And then the other thing is we're finding that more occupiers are switching up the way that they lease space. And we're going to talk about that, I think, a little bit later in the conversation. But they're moving more towards things like hoteling, where I'm in this office, we hold 120 people in this office. And right now there's about 12. And that's pretty standard these days. And for me, it makes sense because all the people I work with in our company are all over the US. I work with a lot of people in our Toronto office, for example. And so it doesn't always make sense for me to come into the office and for all of them to come to the office because we're all remote anyway. But if we have a space designed for 120 people and 12 are coming in, we don't need that big of a space. And I think a lot of occupiers are finding something similar. An app that helps people hotel, helps people book space in flex spaces nearby, that could also make it easier for employees to figure out when they should come in and when they shouldn't come in. So I think on the occupier side, technology can really help. I think on the landlord side, it, it might help, but the data so far is a little bit inconclusive. As part of that survey, Arjun, like, do you get a sense of the motivation? I, mean, I know you mentioned gas prices. Is COVID and spacing and not being in when it's too busy or the vice versa? Is it when I come into the office, we have that complaint here because obviously we're going through the exact same experience is not knowing when it's going to be busy because when it is busy, yeah. that's what people want to be in. And then yeah. they say, well, I came into the office. I had to spend gas. I had to pay for parking and there's nobody here. What am I doing here? Right? What a waste of my day, time commuting, money, et cetera. Are you finding that that use is almost better that you now say, hey, it's, it looks like it's going to be really busy on Wednesday. Everybody come in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's interesting. So I think out of the five or 6,000 responses, there were probably 4,000 comments, right? So people were very motivated to write their feelings on this. There was very little about concern for COVID or, or spreading of viruses. It was all about, I want to come in when more people are coming in and when the most people are coming in. And and so that's definitely one big aspect to it. There was this big CBRE research study that was sent out in you know a couple months ago that I think was passed around quite a bit. And they had a big comment on one of their pages that I thought was great, which is the best employee amenity is other employees. And I think that that's a great encapsulation of it. That's certainly how I feel. I think that's how my colleagues feel. So yeah, that, we have a similar similar situation. Aaron is on the tenant side, of course. He's the lead in our office. We're trying to uh, resolve this issue. What pain points can you see, Aaron, that Arjun could potentially solve with technology? I think visibility on who's coming and when they're coming in is by far the best. Like you said, the best amenity is more employees, right? The best employee amenity is more employees. Like I love that saying. I'll be totally honest. What we're doing is has nothing to do with technology. It's just, again, like I said, beer in a fridge. Yeah. It's free lunches. It's just, it's um, Blue Jays tickets. If you come into the office more often, it's very just sort of simple like but i think obviously technology has more and more of a play in all of these things than it ever has before but see it's interesting aaron that relates to the same question that adam asked me before about real estate 
being maybe a little bit slower to adopt technology. A lot of solutions are not technology related. You know, they're just simple. And we're doing the same thing. Like Friday lunches are in the office and it's great. We get when Austin's big for breakfast tacos. We get a big thing of breakfast tacos. People like to come in and we get maybe 30 those days, which is great. And it's fun. And, and we'd like to get more, but there's the reality of it. And I don't think we're going to be a company that forces people to come in. I think that a, it doesn't seem like it's hurting our productivity dramatically. I think the the desire to get people in the office depends obviously on the role that you're doing, but also on the type of work that you're doing. So we have we've had a couple of onsites recently where I brought people in from all over the US and Canada actually into our office and they were remarkably productive. But I didn't need to do it every single day. I needed it for three days, you know, and then people could go back remote. And I think doing that type of thing, we're now doing those types of onsites more often. And then we're having people come in every couple of weeks. And that's probably going to be the extent of it. And it's hard to do anything more than that in this type of a environment where we're all competing for talent. We're all competing for people who have a lot of other options and not all of them want to work in the office five days a week. Well, then to that end, ours made us a good segue into another area that you're focused on, which is co-working. Because of course, you know, you've already identified that there can be surges in demand for office. I mean, the trend right now obviously is uh, underwhelming response, but does come in fits and spurts. So co-working is, of course, an area that you know it's it that caught caught real estate's attention probably seven eight years ago in a major way, and of course everybody followed it through through the pandemic and will be a big part of how we operate as businesses in this post-pandemic world. What are you working on, on that front to uh, help landlords adapt to this new post-pandemic work style? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of avenues for that. One is definitely on the landlord side, just trying to encourage this mindset of the space that you have is valuable but it has to be set up the right way and and it has to be done in a way that occupiers want to leverage it. And I think there are definitely more forward-thinking landlords that are moving in that direction and have opened up their own sort of flex operations or they're doing more things with people like WeWork and so on. But if you do it yourself, you get more control over everything, right? You have much more of the autonomy to make it the way your tenants want to have it. It's then a different, a slightly different way of operating than a traditional lease, right? You might have people book online and drop in for the day with a day pass, or you might have somebody book a meeting room. And so they're coming off the street. There's access control situations that you have to think through. There's billing things where you're not doing just five-year leases, 10-year leases. You might just be getting revenue for a single day. And you need systems to be able to manage that. And they need to coincide with your corporate accounting and your corporate property management. And it's sort of not super sexy to talk about, but it's important. It makes people's lives easier when you have all these systems that talk to each other. But I think the big thing there is the mindset shift that co-working right now is 2 to 3% of all commercial real estate space in the US and Canada, it's going to grow to something, I think, more like 15 to 20%. And I think most of the research arms of all the big brokerages are saying the same thing. 15 to 20% within the next five years will be co-working space. And that might even be conservative. I don't know. It's, it seems like the shift is going to be pretty dramatic. There was a study done where they were asking occupiers, what percent of your portfolio is flex space right now, you know, and it's sub 5% for all of them. And they're saying what percent of your portfolio will be flex space in the next three years. And it was something like 40 to 50%. I mean, it was a dramatic increase. Landlords, I think, should pay attention to those types of statistics and, and that type of movement. I think, again, to your point, how much is technology related? Yeah, technology can make the processing of that a little bit easier. But there's a big shift operationally in terms of how do you actually manage that type of a change towards co-working? And how do you reconfigure your space so that one of the things we're seeing is that typical co-working is open desks where people come in and work for the day. 
But that's not actually what's doing well in co-working these days. What's doing well in co-working these days is one-person private offices. Because if I come into the office, like right now, I'm talking to you from an open, I'm lucky that there's nobody in the Bay, unfortunately, you know, all around me. But people need to have conversations a lot and they need to have private conversations. And so those one-person private offices are actually doing incredibly well at co-working spots, in addition to obviously two and five people and 10 people, as well as meeting rooms. But the open co-working is something that's less relevant. And so if, you know, if you're a landlord who wants to move in that direction, it's important to pay attention to those types of changes. Well, I think it's probably worth acknowledging that this would be a second shift in the co-working movement. I guess they're called the original model would have been a co-working provider would come to you, still right. sign a five-year lease or 10-year lease or whatever made sense, and then just use the space in a way that was not in line with most of their tenants in the building. But that's not, it's not a major shift from a cash flow administration operations that you'd see in that setup. But what you're talking about is changing the model, kind of taking out the middleman where a landlord would have space. There is no lease. There is no predefined rent. They're taking the risk of the ebbs and flows on themselves. But of course, they're now not propping up a middleman in the process. Yeah. And I think it depends on if you have a large portfolio and you have core property management within, let's say, one or two or five of your markets, but not in these other markets, you might do some in-house stuff in some of your properties. You might give it to a service provider in, in other parts. And it's really what makes sense in different properties. And they might change even within the same market, right? If one property is in a particular location or of a particular type, you might do insourcing or outsourcing of it. I think, though, you can do it with a little bit more confidence than you could five years ago when people were signing 10, 12-year leases, huge TI, and then facing a little bit of risk about whether that's going to be paid back or not. I don't think that that risk is there as much anymore as it was in the past, just given all the demand. And the fact that maybe some of these companies have matured a little bit as well. It's funny, you know, sitting where we are at First National, we have sort of two different business lines, right? Our commercial side and our single family side. They're both sort of monoline mortgage lenders, but different businesses from the single family to the commercial. Of course, on the commercial, we're dealing with a bunch of different asset classes. There's different loan structures. There is certainly more input into the mortgage that gets ultimately, you know, funded and registered. On the single family side, of course, there's complexities, but it's, it's much more of a narrow box, right? Like there are more standardized formulas that you're looking at. It's much more of a, you know, a consistent process. There's nine steps versus in commercial, there might be 50 and they vary. So I 100%, I mean, for our business, we're 100% pushing collaboration. We want people in the office. We believe it's important that you're there to hear what's going on and participate. There's education, there's networking, all that thing. But we do hear from our team members on the single family side saying like, the reality is I don't really get a lot of benefit out of that. Like I'm here, I'm sitting down, I got to crunch through my, my loans. I got to do this. Like I can do this at home. I can do this on the beach. I can, I don't need to be in the office. I don't get any benefit from it, but I know we're not really getting into the supply and demand metrics, but I, I feel like there's going to be a whole whack of corporations that go like, it's just collaboration space and in office is just not beneficial to me ultimately. And I, I don't know. And I'm just putting this out there because I don't know the answer. It's curious because pre-pandemic in our single family world, everybody was in the end in the office, 8.30 to 5 every day. Like there was no option, right? And now all of a sudden it almost feels like a 180. Like we don't ever need to be in the office again, simply because we learned as a result of the pandemic that it wasn't necessary. But I don't know if other institutions are feeling that way. Do you have a sense of what that looks like? And ultimately, I guess if I think I put my macro hat on, that has a major negative implications on office demand and ultimate valuations and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before the pandemic, we were trying to make a change to do one day a month remote. 
so that people with kids, you know, if they have those kids who are older, who are sick, they don't have to take a day off for a sick day. They can just work remotely or if they have housework or whatever. Company wasn't open to it because for 40 years, come to the office, you badge in, you badge out. And it was pretty regimented. And five days into the shutdown in the U.S., we do a wholesale shift to fully remote and productivity stayed the same or went up. The revenue of the company did very well. And our CEO and executive said, it's hard to justify this, except that we do think that in-person is important. We just have to figure out when it's important. And employees said, yeah, if you can justify to me why it's important, I'm happy to come in. And also there's the because culture, of, Arjun, culture, because yeah, culture, I, exactly. but I don't know how you quantify it. Like that's the hard part, right? That's, and I don't think any of us know yet. I mean, I, I really think that it's a complete unknown. I, what ties, Aaron, you and I might, if we're working together, I know you now as well as I know some of our employees in our different offices, right? <laughs> and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And it's a, it's a tricky world and it feels, but I will say is because we were a multinational, we I did come to the office every day and I felt like sometimes that this is completely useless. I'm going to be on calls for nine hours with people who are not in this office. So why am I coming to the office? Now it feels at least like, okay, I'll come to the office when it makes sense to, when I have the team members in Austin that I work with who are in and and so on. But I don't know if anybody knows, except that there clearly will be a shift and how big the shift is in terms of reduction of office space is TBD. But I think that it's not going to be easy for landlords to force anybody to come in because they don't have control over these employees, right? It's the employers who have that control. And even the employers are finding they don't have control. I mean, on in my neighborhood, so a lot of people work for Google and Facebook and so on. They all said, yeah, I have to go back to the office, but I'm not really going to go. <laughs> you know, when <laughs> Google put out this thing of you have to be in the office three days a week, there's a couple lives next door to me. They both work for Google. They're like, we're not going to the office. I don't know what they're talking about. And of course they did. And then Google retracted the statement. And so it's not clear where the power lies anymore either. And or so maybe I, it is clear, actually, when yeah, you, when you right. say it like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe it is clear. Yeah. So, and maybe we don't want to acknowledge that it's clear. Yeah, so, well, let's see, how, let's see how the Tesla experiment goes, right? Like, I will be curious how many mass exits that they experience because of what you know, Elon Musk has done. Uh, let's move on to the next topic. I don't want to lose... Uh, sorry, my computer's crashed. Adam, you do it. Sorry. Sure, yeah. <laughs> A tech episode experiencing a tech failure. I know. Sorry. No, it's back. Okay, it fixed itself. It's fine. Don't worry. Tech's working. Tech's working. I'll go, though, just because you might be rattled with your computer issues here. The next one we're going to talk about is multifamily, which, of course, is an asset class near and dear to uh, Aaron's and mine heart. This is kind of like a two-pronger. One is that leasing there has gotten a lot more sophisticated. When I was renting my first apartment in university, I was probably just, I, I walked down the street and saw a sign that said for rent and called the phone number three times and then got somebody <laughs> rent the space. And of course, that's not the way it operates now. So in one sense, you've got multifamily, which is definitely treated differently than the other three main asset classes. It's gotten more sophisticated. You know, it's moved more towards the side of how you see the other three asset classes performing their leasing. But then on the other side of that, because leasing now is not of the certainty that it did pre-COVID, you're seeing shorter life cycles of leases there or shorter lease terms. You're going to see a lot more frequent leasing, which would kind of move those other three asset classes closer to multifamily. I want to talk about the kind of similarities in leasing between the two. Not that they'll perfectly meld, but they're starting to look a little more similar. And then what you're using the tech side to help the more similarly structured leases now between all four asset classes. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it a little bit to Aaron's earlier point of you have single family homes and you have commercial, right? And, and they're very different, right? In the way that these, these steps are organized. 
I think for multifamily versus office, for example, before the pandemic, they couldn't be more opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Everything with commercial is going through brokers. It's very highly negotiated. There's a lot of complexity to the lease agreements and how these things are structured. And rightfully so, because they're major spaces they are very expensive and people need to make sure that both sides are comfortable. And that takes a long discussion. Multifamily was going almost 100% automated from any listing site. You can book an online tour. You can actually go into that building and do a self-serve tour. The lock will automatically unlock when you present your phone ID. You'll do your tour within their self-serve apartment unit and you'll be able to sign up online. And once the sort of credit check or whatever other things are completed, you're in and you have your lease and could not be more different. I think now that commercial is moving a little bit more towards shorter leases, maybe wanting simpler leases, it might move a little bit in that direction. I don't think it's going to get anywhere near that automated, nor do I think it should get nearly that automated because, again, there's still complex spaces and longer leases. But it's at least the acknowledgement from landlords that right now, a typical landlord, if they have availability, they'll update their website, right? And that's a manual process into their content management system behind their website. They'll have their brokers update CoStar. They'll have either the brokerage or their in-house team update the brochure. Then they'll populate their email marketing system to send an email blast. So there are four different places and it's incredibly inefficient. It's quite expensive, but it makes sense if you're doing a huge deal and it's going to be 10 years and you're doing it once, right? And you're doing it once across each of the units. That's going to start to be more hard to justify, I think, as we go forward. You might as well have one platform where you enter one thing in, it populates all those different places automatically. It sends it to CoStar, it sends availabilities to CoStar, populates your brochures, you can send emails from it. I think that that's one aspect of landlords starting to move towards a kind of more modern way of marketing their stuff and tracking things like, hey, Adam's interested in leasing the space on behalf of this company. I'm going to send him an email and I'm going to track if he opened it. And when he opened it, I might get a text message that says he opened it. So I might give him a quick follow-up call to see if he's interested, if he has any questions. That type of stuff is far different than what had been happening in the past. And I think it is a more proactive way for landlords to make sure they try to occupy the spaces. So that's one aspect of marketing that's, I think, moving a little bit more towards towards multifamily. The second is we're finding, especially for like retail kiosks and storage spaces, if you think about a big mall with all the kiosks in the middle as you walk down the halls or pop-up stores, or even for industrial flex, landlords are saying, you know what, I'll put a 2,000 square foot space online and see if somebody books it. They're starting to put pricing and start to have a deal process that could actually be completed online where a tenant can come in, they could actually sign a letter of intent. They might even put down a sort of temporary security deposit that doesn't get charged, but they're willing to pay it. So by the time it gets to the broker or the leasing rep for the landlord, it's a very well-vetted deal that they can then just decide if they want to approve or they want to call them to confirm it. And it's much different than the past where it's just like, hey, there's a high-level lead named Adam and I know nothing about what he wants aside from he submitted a lead form. So I don't think we'll ever get to the point that somebody's going to book fully online. I wouldn't say ever. In the next couple of years, I don't think we're going to get to that point. But we are moving more in the direction of multifamily for sure. Do not think with technology and the sort of just the way that you've got these virtual videos and I mean, not just even drone flying, but you can just kind of get people to walk around spaces and that if you can cut out that broker and that can be a 5% savings. Like they can be expensive. Like, there, is there not motivation for, for landlords to find ways to get that direct to, you know, again, not to diminish the value of the broker? Because I, I mean, they're very important in certain aspects, but I can see is particularly on 
the smaller leasing side, whether it's sort of small retail space or industrial base space, where it's, it's easier just to find your retail tenant. Yeah. So I think that that's a great point, Aaron. And I think that if you think about the brokerage value add, so for example, Yardi right now, if we have a change in one of our leases or if we're saying, hey, this space behind me is 90% unoccupied, we're going to call our brokers, right? Because they're going to help us negotiate what we want to do. And they're going to negotiate in a way that is in good faith with the landlord and it's all going to be handled well. That sort of detailed negotiation often makes absolute sense to have a broker. The marketing of a small space I've found that brokers don't care about those. Like they don't want a 2,000 square foot space. And it's the not... leases, typically the users are, or the occupiers are unsophisticated. You just exactly. put a lease in front and say, here, it's not exactly. rent, recoverables, you like it? Okay, that's great. It's, it's only four pages, so it's easy. It's not 70. Yeah, I mean, exactly. assuming you've used that short form lease, right? Exactly. And so I think the commission on that is not attractive to them. The work to find it is not attractive. So I do think 5,000, 4,000 square feet and below Brokers don't want anything to do with it. Landlords have these spaces. They might become more interesting spaces, actually, as we go forward. And that's a perfect opportunity for marketing to kind of make that more automated. The reason I say it may not be fully online is because landlords still always want to have the ability to figure out, do I think that this is actually a good tenant? I need to talk to this person and make sure that I've at least heard their voice and are they legit or not? And so I think it's mainly that the landlords will want the ability to say yay or nay. It's not that the tenants won't want to do it. But I do think for small spaces, you can get to the point where a tenant might feel comfortable enough to basically reserve it. And then the landlord can confirm or not confirm. And then the bigger ones where there's long, longer negotiations, I think you have brokers involved. I'm glad we backed off the position of we're trying to cut out brokers from deals because I thought that was a dangerous path we were going down to. <laughs> uh, any technology to cut out operations guys from lenders or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's my that's my job. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we're expanding our relationship with brokerages because I think that they're going to become more critical because there's a lot of negotiation happening and landlords and tenants, landlords might be equipped depending on their, their in-house staffing. Tenants are not equipped to handle these negotiations. They don't know what they're doing in this situation. Brokers are going to be seeing a lot more sort of traffic in terms of lots of tenants want to figure out what to do. And brokers are just going to see a lot more and be able to know what's standard in the market. And so actually, we're expanding our relationship with brokerages because I feel like they're going to play a big role. So absolutely, they're not going anywhere. I just think that for the pure marketing side, that might be moving a little bit. But for the sales and negotiation side, I think it stays the same and becomes more critical. One area that's really captivated my imagination is the virtual tours. They've gotten so sophisticated in the last, I don't know, call it three or four years. I keep seeing them you know, posted on LinkedIn. and I'm just blown away. Are you working on anything in that front? And what's the just beyond where we are now, next step for virtual tours, making my jaw drop a couple of years from now? Yeah. The things we do on that front is more as a service provider where we can go out and do a virtual tour for a client. The actual underlying technology, there's five or six companies that have the technology. And it's actually, the way it's programmed is relatively straightforward. You put a big camera into a room and you take a, a certain type of a photo and then you move to another room and you take a certain type of photo and you kind of string them together. It's incredible. I mean, I, I was actually looking, we're doing an, a company onsite and, uh, in Phoenix in August, and I was trying to find, you know, it's 30 people. So our office there doesn't have a meeting room for 30 people. So we're going to do it at a co-working place. So I could go to all the different co-working providers in the area and get a 3D view of their floor plan and then scan into the room to see, okay, are there 30 chairs at these desks? I didn't have to call anybody. I could just go through and look and get a sense of it. And it was incredible. I mean, it was just so efficient. And then I could see the price of that and I could basically book right there. And it's just such a fast way to make these things happen. 
And it's indicative, like, you know, the one that we're going with is in the Class A office building. It's a beautiful place. Everybody's excited about it. And that landlord will do well based off that, right? 30 people coming in for several days. It's just that that hell had to meet that sort of process of me looking for it. Well, exactly. It improves your experience and saves them time. I mean, I, I started out my career in brokerage and I left 10 years ago. And the number of times I, I was also low man on the totem pole. So I was the one doing those tours for the smaller units and the amount of time you'd spend driving over to take somebody through space, they instantly go, nope, this does not work. And then you're kind of, you know, grinding back through traffic and all of a sudden you've lost three hours of your day for what was a complete dead end. It's really improving the lives of people on both sides of the transaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's making it more efficient, making it less frustrating. It absolutely is, is helping things. And I, that should be the goal of technology, right? It shouldn't just be something that people have because it's cool. It should be something that people have because it makes their lives better. And if it doesn't, then it's not really worthwhile to have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am partial to cool technology as well, but uh, yeah, I agree. That's the utility, is, I mean, utility should the be first the time we all saw the Tesla, you know, screen. I think we all thought, all right, that's pretty awesome. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then, I guess we're going to uh, end off shortly here. And so everybody, Aaron and I speak to in the tech space. We always wind up with this point where we look for. I was just going to say that. Tech. Yeah, yeah we, like, we got. What do know. you see? What's coming? What should we be excited about on the horizon? You know, when you're sitting around with people, your colleagues, and you're just kind of spitballing on a Friday afternoon and staring at a cloud dreaming, what are you, what are you talking about? Oh man, what's, you know, I, so this will harken back to the earlier part of the conversation where you asked, are real estate people pragmatic with technology or not? Everything I think about is like, if you take blockchain or crypto or meta, the metaverse or all these things that, that everybody's talking about. All I'm focused on is how can we use that, if at all, to help our clients? And I'm actually kind of going the opposite way, which is like, you know, Aaron's got his beer fridge. That's probably going to work just as well as anything else. And so I think I won't blow your minds. I'll say that you guys are on the right track. And I'd say question technology sometimes when you look at it and say, does this thing actually help me in my in my process? And that's kind of where my head's at. And I know that's not that cool, but maybe I'm not that cool. But we also, the clients love us for that reason, <laughs> because <laughs> we focus on that. So I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. I got, there's a whole bunch of people listening that work for First National saying, awesome, now I can just keep my spreadsheets and not get pushed onto these online platforms. Right. Like, no, we got, no, we got awesome products to actually help you that are better than Excel, but they're not going to blow your mind. They're only going to blow your mind if you care about that thing, which I'm sure your users may not. I so, still love Excel. Yeah, for the record, yeah. I still love yeah, Excel. Yeah. No, so I think it's an exciting world for technology, but it's a pretty practical world the way that I view it. And the stuff that's really far out there, I don't know. I think when I come to the office, I'm looking outside right now at our garden in the front here next in this, we're kind of like in this corporate office building. It's nice. Like that's what I, you know, the physical experience is what we're all looking for in commercial real estate and technology can help in some ways, but that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Bring people together into nice environments where they can be productive. And it doesn't take much more than that to make people happy, I think. I love it. That's a very realistic perspective. You weren't talking about modular builds and 3D printing and, you know, we're all going to fly to work every day. Like this is, it is, it is not 1984, right? If you want to use that analogy. Arjun, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, of course, to the Real Estate Forum for hosting us for this episode of Ask the Experts. And thanks, Adam, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the conversation that just took place. I've been waiting anxiously to get you alone, Aaron, 
I did not know we had a beer fridge at work. I did not know <laughs> I could do mortgages from the beach. So when am I going to see these benefits come to? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> beer fridge is off limits. It's under surveillance, twenty four seven. No, in commercial, you need to collaborate. So you're going to be in the office all the time. Sorry. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. As I as I just I was I'm prepping to go to the beach for two weeks to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why it's on your mind. I really liked his statement about the best employee amenity is other employees. I mean, boy, is it true. Perfect example being we have beautiful brand new class A office space. It's a real joy to be in. But when our office opened back up to kind of large scale return to work in March of this year, I came in on a Monday and I was the only person on my team there sitting in beautiful class A office space, but you're there alone. And so that day, despite the nice amenities of the building, I felt, what am I doing here? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because we do have that technology that allows us to track who's logged in and logged out. And I'm sure there are ways to do future projections based on history or whatever. And and we might want to start thinking about that. The reality is, I mean, for us, it has been a non-technology approach, right? Like we've literally just done events, training sessions, speaker series, beer in the fridge, lunches, and that's driven people into the office. And then what we thought would happen is that people are, when there's lots of people, people like being in the office, so they come more often. Like you're in more often than you were three months ago, and you probably will be in more often in three months from now than you are today. Like I think it just, people are creatures of behavior and patterns and slowly those patterns and behaviors change. And I think people are naturally attracted to be in the office and the energy that you get from being in the office. And we just got to slowly you know, remind people of that. Well, I mean, the good news is, at least from my view of you know, the first national setup, of course, I'm on a sales team and by just the nature of personalities attracted to that tend to be social creatures. Yeah. So they need the human contact more than others. Well, it, it, I actually found that interesting. If you did have an app that gave you a heads up, oh, my people are going to be in the office, it would incentivize me to be in. On my team, we've gravitated towards Thursdays, the day where absolutely everybody's coming in. So I know I'm never going to miss a Thursday because I, I like it much more than the rest of the days of the week when yeah. you know maybe half people are there. But if I knew, if I saw on an app, oh boy, like Tuesday's looking really good, I'm going to make a point of being there so I can see that see that. Yeah, well, I, that's I, there you go. I just now got a to-do list. Thanks. That's something to do on my holiday. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of the other things that he said that was really interesting was just the concept about leases. And again, I think we were really clear, not trying to diminish the value of a broker, but he kind of clarified it that the small leases, the small base space, the brokers aren't necessarily really motivated on that anyway, because there's one that they're not big spaces, so it's not a ton of revenue to generate. Two, they're typically fairly simple or straightforward leases, and therefore not a lot of moving parts that don't really need that expertise. And so it was curious to hear that he's seeing landlords really shifting to providing more of an online platform, using technology, leveraging technology to see the space, access the space. And I enjoyed that he called it the multi-familyization of the commercial space. And and to be fair, where we sit in Canada, I think we lag behind. I don't know of that many buildings in the Canadian marketplace that have that full touchless, come access the building, access the unit, sign up for the lease, move in. You don't even have to talk to a person. Like I, I think that's still much more something that's more regular in the US than it is in Canada. Yeah, I think a Tricon, who's active down in the States, we've had a few people from that company on. And one of them was talking about, I think it was Andrew Joyner was talking about how 
they integrated that into their Canadian platform just before leading into to COVID, but right. they'd already had extensive experience doing it in the States where I guess that is more of a standard practice. He was kind of highlighting that they were well positioned to transition to a model you know, because of COVID realities where you were trying to do contactless tours and contactless leasing. But yeah, if you were just, you and I own a 30 plex and we've been managing it for 15 years, all of a sudden running into the brick wall of COVID, it would be tough, you know, trying to adapt at that level. Because of course, Tricon is a very large company with a huge unit count. It's a little different than other segments of the market where they don't necessarily have tech platforms and that kind of motivation to, to move Well, forward. I mean, it makes sense. The multifamily spaces add one, it's a direct to consumer and two, you know, you might have 200 units in one building. So it's rather than having eight units and you're leasing them out to corporations. So clearly there's, there's a, just a fundamental differences, but again, I, that's just back to the conversation you and I always have that Canada always seems to lag a little bit behind what's transpiring in the U S and there, that one. I, I mean, even he said, use your phone key to tap into access the unit. Like, I don't think I've ever had to use my phone to tap into anything yet. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I can barely use it to pay for things, you know, and I know <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. it's super common. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Let alone accessing, you know, locked rooms. That, that's just, <laughs> yeah. that still is beyond my experience so far. Uh, he was talking about the, well, you just brought up as well, the brokers and, and small leases not being so desirable. And it's funny, it's a, a conversation I had came to mind. It was a friend of mine, probably seven or eight years ago, who was trying to lease space in Ottawa for a restaurant. He goes, why can't I get like a good broker's attention to deal with this? Like, how much money do they make off doing the lease? And I can't remember the exact number, but I was like, oh, they probably make four or $5,000. He's like, well, for $5,000, you can't tour me through a couple of places and put together a lease. I go, well, yeah, but restaurants have a bit of a reputation in the marketplace is not desirable for all tenants. But more importantly, for everybody running around looking for a small space that actually signs a lease, there's probably eight or nine just kicking tires. And so it's not just the taking you to a few spaces for a $5,000 paycheck. Pre-splits with your brokerage, of course, you know, that's the other number that I don't think he was appreciating. It's easy to run around the market with eight or nine people looking at small spaces in order to push one lease forward. And so now you're kind of averaging your your money making of you know five hundred dollars per client you're taking out of that level, so it doesn't make sense. But I remember being, him being a kind of a little flabbergasted. He goes, "Oh, it's a couple of days work for five grand. Who wouldn't do that?" I go, "Ah, yes, no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work that way." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, maybe maybe this is happening. We're just I haven't come across it yet. But you would think that some of those large firms like the Colliers, the CBREs, the all Davis and Youngs, you name them are producing these types of technology. Say, okay, listen, you know what? For our leasing arm, we're going to offer this solution. You've got a space or you're a tenant who's looking for a small space, just come here, use our digital platform. It's all virtual and we'll just almost cannibalize our own business you know, just for the idea of keeping those tenants close to us to offer ancillary products. I mean, maybe I just come up with a great business idea to keep my mouth shut. But, <laughs> yeah, um, we'll edit this part out before we uh, you know, find out what the big brokerages are doing. <laughs> I hope someone just went, oh, that's a great idea, right? Yeah. So yeah. give me credit, okay? Give me credit. <laughs> All right, thanks, Adam. Thanks for this. That was a good conversation with Arjun. Another, you sort of peer into the massive platform that is Yardi. They've got so many different expertise. It is, it is quite amazing just the scope and size of that organization. And yet another good conversation with them. Two thousand people in commercial alone. That number kind of floored me. That's nuts, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Anyway. All right. Till next time. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.